There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning, listeners, and welcome to Green Life Radio on 3CR. It is 7am on a Friday morning, and we've got Zane and... Jacob. Is my mic on? Yep. It is now. Hi, good. There was a mistake there. Hi. Whoopsie-doo. Uh, so, um, so we have a... We have a program today, um, not as packed as last week, but we do have an interview with Paz Fulgani, um, who's the national coordinator of the Anti-Poverty Network um, in around 14 minutes. Um, we're going to talk to them generally about the work um, that they've been involved in um, because they've actually been, you know, having a lot of, they've actually achieved a lot of gains um, and a lot of breakthroughs and they are having a conference in Adelaide this weekend so we'll be keen to talk to them uh, a bit about that and before we um, kind of move on to sort of the latest news in the kind of activist left world, um, I'd like to acknowledge that Free CR today is being broadcast to you um, from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation, uh, and I like to pay my respects um, to elders past and present, and that it always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. So, um, I guess in terms of um, the headline news, um, there was some. There's some positive. There was a positive news story that happened um, recently. I think just over on Wednesday, um, the citizen, basically the immigration minister Peter Dunton, um, was looking to push um, this citizenship bill, which basically would mean um, um, that would require applicants to live in Australia for four years on permanent resident visas and demonstrate competence in English. Um, Mr. Dutton had sought to apply these changes to all people who applied from April um, 20, but he could not secure support from the Senate. Um, And, of course, a last-minute proposal by Peter Dutton, hours before a parliamentary deadline to keep his bill alive, was rejected by the Senate crossbench. Um, Those uh, amendments to the initial bill reduced the English competency required by applicants from competent to modest and changed the start date to July next year. And of course, uh, so that that's generally positive because what Peter Dutton was actually proposing was a kind of basically a openly kind of racist way of basically you know putting stricter requirements on on migrants, um, overseas migrants to Australia. You know, and there was also this, there was also like talk about how this citizenship test would have like you know questions such as that would you know, basically you'd have to do to prove how much of an Australian you are. Mm. Yeah, and I think the level of English that was expected in those tests was, like, really advanced, like, university level. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the time in history when um, 
Actually, if you go to, I think there's a, I don't know what museum, but this is a like a story that um, one of my teachers um, told me um, when um, I was doing my education support class. Um, basically, the story of this is um, basically there used to be this test um, that you'd have to take um, sometime in the early 20th century to prove that you're you were to be proved to be eligible for Australian citizenship. Uh, and apparently you can take this test at an Australian museum and it's almost impossible to pass. Uh, and you'd have to be, to have passed this test, you would have to be part of like upper class kind of Australia culture because hmm. they all had all this sort of, you know, fancy kind of British language and etc. Hmm. So it's a test that's designed to make people fail. Yeah. Well, especially working class people. <laughs> mm. yeah. Yes. Um, something we should also do is acknowledge that we're coming out. I you. already did that. Oh, cool, yeah, cool, I did cool. That before. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to run to the bathroom and get some uh, toilet paper because I'm a bit sneezy this morning. All right. Yep. So, um, any other kind of headline news um, you would like to share, Zane, or you? Yeah, well, it's just uh, going around social media uh, that the New Zealand Labour Party has taken government over there, but they've done it in a shady way, which is by forming a coalition with the New Zealand equivalent of One Nation, uh, which is New Zealand First. So, yeah, they've formed a coalition with this racist nationalist party. And, uh, no, yeah, that's going to embolden the right-wing nationalist sort of element of the Mm. Labour Party over there, which, as we know from here, it's a thing. Yeah. Nationalism within the Labour Party. So that's really sort of... That'll be something to watch. But uh, that's a really unprincipled way to take government. Mm. I guess um, um, what's significant is... Um, based, it was interesting how, like, we actually did an interview with, um, with someone from New Zealand like five, four to five weeks ago, and they've only just managed to resolve the issues after the election and uh, form government. Hmm. Um, I get, um, I guess probably the, what was what is considered significant in news media, um, if you read the mainstream news, is actually put um, they're going on a lot about how Jacinta is going to be like the first kind of thirty-seven-year-old young female prime minister. Um, but ultimately, the main, I guess, the main issues, despite you know her gender and her age, her politics aren't particularly that progressive, and probably not much more progressive than the Labor Party here. Mm. Although there were some compar- there were some people making comparisons. Um, comparing her to Jeremy Corbyn uh, and Bernie Sanders. But actually, there was also people also comparing her to um, Emmanuel Macron from France. And so, Mm. you know, those three people, one of them is not like the other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it seems to be a bit of a thing in the mainstream media of just going, ah, this person from Country X is the latest Corbyn or Sanders. Mm. Mm. Ian, there's no, they're nothing to like. Yeah. Um, I guess another news story is um, is uh, around the AFL um, Women's League. Um, transgender um, footballer Hannah Muncy um, has been, you know, ruled 
eligible for the 2018 AFLW draft. Um, you know, this the draft um, is going to be apparent were was apparently held uh, on Wednesday in Melbourne. And um, as it's reported here, Monsi had previously played for the Australian men's handball team before transitioning, and she has played several games in the ACT Women's AFL competition in 2017. Um, apparently, this kind of decision is based on, you know, um, based on this fact that, you know, oh, yes, apparently, um, you know, she... She disproportionately has increased physical strength, strength over her over the female competitors. But I think the main issue with that is, is basically um, it's it's like an example of trans sort of phobia because basically they're just presuming it's based on the presumption that she is a pat. They still see her. The AFL still sees her as a male, hmm. um, despite the fact that actually. It, I mean, some of the, the, the arguments are quite arbitrary. Um, like, for example, they declared that her height was too high, despite the fact that there are plenty of cisgender women who are taller than her. So it's, like, completely arbitrary um, how they've came up with, you know, for these kind of particular reasons of why. And there's also, you know, a lot of... Um, there's a lot of science out there that shows, especially for trans women, you know, who undergo, say, hormone, um, what's the word again? Hormone therapy. Yeah, hormone therapy. H- hormone replacement oh, therapy. Hopefully I'm using quick game. <laughs> that mm-hmm. um, basically they they actually, it's, um, the science actually sort of suggests, although I don't know the correct terminology and the terms to describe it, that, you know, but basically the basic premise is that they're physically might be weaker than cisgender women so it's yeah the body metabolism um would change to become more similar to that of a cisgendered woman yeah so that makes sense really and um Um, but um in response um monsi released um a statement on tuesday evening in response to the afl's decision um and it said while i am extremely disappointed with the afl's decision regarding my participation in tomorrow's AFLW draft. I thanked them in a general way, which they approached my situation. They said, and I will be making no further comment this time. She also posted on Twitter in support of everyone taking class place in the draft. Mm. But of course, um, um, the AFL Players Association, which had been assisting Morsi through the nomination process, acknowledged that the issue was complex, but was critical of the AFL's time frame for reaching. The decision. Whilst Hannah was provided with the opportunity to discuss her application with the AFL, the AFAPA believes there should have been clear guidelines available for transgender players wishing to enter the AFLW draft this year. Um, no a- athlete should face such confusion around their eligibility for elite competition co- that's just days out from the draft. And of course, they basically make a statement urging AFL to prioritise the development of guidelines, detailing the process and primaries for entry into the AFLW competition so that Hannah and any other players have a clear understanding of their eligibility. Mm. So that's basically, yep, I think that's basically the only... But I'd still say I think AFLW's decision is problematic. Yeah. Um, well, if the, if the problem is that if you are... Uh um, two meters tall and a hundred kilos, which is the statistics that have been given on Hannah's height and, and body mass. Um, then the AFL should have rules saying 
in the women's league, there is a maximum height and a maximum weight for players. There's no such provision in the men's league, mm-hmm. but they should have that provision and they should say, regardless of whether you're cisgendered or transgendered or whatever, if you're above a certain height and weight, even though we don't apply this benchmark in the men's competition, there's a maximum height and weight you're allowed to be mm. in the women's competition. So that's one issue. Why would you have this rule in the women's competition when you don't have it in the men's? Mm. It's not like in the men's competition that there's no size and weight disparity. I did a little Google search. There's people in the men's league that are, I think, the shortest player. I can't remember if it was 158 or 168 centimetres tall. And then the tallest player in the AFL is 211 centimetres. So there's like a 40 centimetre height gap the lightest players are like 67 kilos or something. The heaviest players, 120 kilos, so mm. nearly double the weight. Um, I, I really can't see how the weight and height disparity between Hannah Mouncey and some of the smaller players in the AFL Women's League would be that massively or radically yeah. different to the size and heights and weights in the men's competition. And above all... Uh, when people choose to play contact sport, they take a calculated risk to do that. They know it's a physical game, and I think it's patronising to the women's league to say, "Oh, we need to protect the women from this from this tall player because she's she's too big and it's too scary." Yeah, I think if if anyone is going to make that call, it should be the players' association. I personally would still disagree but it would have more weight coming from the players association not from the afl bureaucracy Mm. preemptively and on behalf of players saying oh no no um the small women Mm. aren't up for this it's i just think it's really yeah but again uh, as i sort of said previously in some uh other analysis i've read on other news sites there has been some analysis that shows that you know there's actually um, cisgender woman with cinema physique um, as Hannah. Um, and of course, but of course, if that was the case where they were, you know, competing in the AFL, um, they, they probably wouldn't have been arbitrarily blocked from participating in the draft because, oh yes, because they're born women, then they're automatically drafted in. Um, they wouldn't have put, but because... Hannah is a, a trans woman. She's put under all this kind of extra scrutiny, which I think wouldn't wouldn't um, apply if it was a, if she was a cisgender woman. Mm. And then the flip side of that is okay. If Hannah Mouncey is not supposed to play in the women's league, then presumably people would be saying that she should play in the men's league. And if the rules are going to be bent to allow a transgender woman to play in the men's AF, in the VFL or in the AFL, then why can't cisgendered women choose to play? Because at the moment, if you're a if you're a cisgendered woman, you are banned from, as I understand it, you're banned from playing in the men's AFL or VFL. So if Hannah Mouncey is not allowed to play in the women's league, then unless she's supposed to just quit playing AFL for some bizarre reason, then presumably she's meant to play in the men's league. How is that logically consistent that she would be allowed to play and that other women are forbidden? Um, And I I, I think 
if women were permitted to play in the VFL and the AFL, you would see women stepping up to the plate and saying, "Hell yeah, I'll take on, I'll take on the blokes. I'm, I'm bring it. I'm ready." And that would be in itself really inspiring and cool too to see women playing uh, in in the men's competition. I don't think that there's a it's it's a bizarre and arbitrary thing to have this division where men play in one code and women in another. So yes, disappointing decision, and it will be uh, yeah interesting to see what happens this time next year because uh, hopefully in in the meantime the players association and uh, grassroots campaigners will be able to win some more space and uh, yeah hopefully this time again next year uh, yeah Hannah won't be arbitrarily denied the ability to participate in the draft okay welcome back you are on Hi. 3CR, it is 7.19, and on the phone from SA, we've got Paz Forgioni. Is that, sorry, for the Forgione, Forgioni? Forgioni. Forgioni. Paz Forgioni from the Anti-Poverty Network, South Australia, who have been doing some uh, excellent advocacy work uh, with unemployed people and around the level of um, the sub-poverty level of Newstart. So, welcome, Paz. And, Good morning, it's really good to have you on the show at long last. Yeah. I guess um, the first kind of question we're asked, because we kind of want to do a bit of a general interview because a good way of um, introducing people to the work um, that Anti-Poverty Network are doing. Um, so, Paz, can you tell us a bit about, you know, the kind of work, um, how Anti-Poverty Network first started and generally what is the kind of type of work kind of you do on a daily basis? Yeah, well... I guess the best way of thinking about the Anti-Poverty Network is that we're basically a union for um, people receiving Centrelink payments. And um, those are the people who are our members and who lead our advocacy and our campaigning and our other activities. So um, our members are are all people um, living below the poverty line who've got direct experience of dealing with, you know, the, the increasingly frustrating and stressful welfare bureaucracy. I'm unemployed people, sole parents, carers, age, and disability pensioners. Um, we um, set ourselves up in late 2013, um, a couple of months after Tony Abbott was elected Prime Minister, and I, I think there was a sense that we were, of course, um, um, proven correct that this was going to be a government that was going to be particularly um, hostile to people receiving government payments. Um, Not that Labour governments have been particularly friendly either, for that matter. Um, And, of course, the um, following year in the 2014 federal budget, that very first um, budget that Abbott and Hockey um, handed down, um, we saw extraordinary um, attacks on the safety net attempts them to um, deny people under the age of 30 access um, to new start for six months of every year, massive expansions of work for the doll, cashless welfare, um, like attempts to actually cut the rate of new start at a time where, you know, even large sections of the business community are calling for the payment to be significantly raised. Um, so that was... I guess that's the background in terms of of, of like how we got going. Um, 
I mean, the um, backbone of the group um, was um, people from the northern suburbs of Adelaide who were um, fighting the um, basics cart, which was introduced um, to northern Adelaide in 2012. This was under Labor, but kept it's been kept going under uh, under Abbott and Turnbull. And sole parents who'd been kicked off parenting payment single and put onto New Start, um, like again, uh, um, something that started under Howard, but then Gillard picked up where Howard left off. So that was, uh, I guess, those were the two starting points. But the groups, the groups evolved, and we now um, have members representing every single Centrelink payment type, but all the issues that that they're fighting against and that they're dealing with are fundamentally the same. It's a it's a welfare system that's punitive, that blames the victim, that's stigmatizing and with um, grossly like inadequate payments, unlike particularly for people on allowances, but of course you know pensions aren't aren't particularly pleasant to live on either. Hmm. I guess um, now the next kind of question is um, you've is to talk about kind of like, you know, um, the kind of work you've been doing regarding um, you've managed to successfully get um, eight local councils um, in South Australia, though it might be more now because the number keeps increasing every week from what I can see on social media, to publicly advocate for an increase to Newstart. Um, can you tell us a bit about that, you know, that local campaign? Yeah. Yeah, well, this has been a bit of a... Um pleasant surprise um, to us. We uh, started this uh, a few months ago, um, partly um, for strategic reasons. The anti-poverty network has been gradually growing in Adelaide, and we've set up um, a number of suburban branches um, like across the city in areas where there's um, high unemployment. And for obvious reasons, you know, I mean, our goal is to activate and and, and organize people with very low incomes who are less likely to be mobile. So we try to organize around where they live instead of expecting them to come into the CBD. So part of, part of the motivation was, uh, you know, to find a campaign for them, a campaign that was, you know, local, but but was still connected um, to the big issues, you know, the big issues that, are, that um, are making life very tough for people on, Centrelink, and of course, uh, one of the biggest was the low rate of new start. So, uh, I guess the, the the thing that inspired us really was what was happening in other parts of the country. The way that local councils can shape um, the public conversation on, you know, big state and federal issues. And the obvious example of that is the debate um, around changing the date of Australia Day, where I, I think interventions by by local governments have really um, helped to give the issue um, so much more attention and traction. Um, mm. And the fact is that um, poverty and and unemployment are local issues. I mean, many councils have and you know will continue to sort of wash their hands and say uh, this has nothing to do with us. Go and speak to your state and federal representatives, but um, we don't have a bar of that. I mean, we, I mean, we think that's basically um, cowardice. I mean, you know, you can't 
say that in parts of Adelaide where you've got, you know, one in ten people who are out of work, who are living on an income that's $160 a week below the poverty line, who can't participate in community life and in, like, economic life, you cannot seriously say that that's not a local issue. And that's the argument that that we've been using for councils. And, in fact, um, you know, further to that, you know, councils councils have a responsibility to stick up for their residents regardless of of, of whose jurisdiction. Um, I mean, obviously, only the federal government can raise the level of a new start, but we don't think that should stop councils from speaking out. You know, it, it, it's the level of government that... Um, that is easiest um, for the community to access and reach. And the fact is that, you know, uh, the other two levels of government are um, are pretty unresponsive to um, to the interests and, and to the needs of low-income people, particularly welfare recipients. So for us, it made sense on some level that would actually start spending a fair bit of time um, pressuring local governments um, to be a bit of a voice for for the unemployed. And I'm glad to say that actually quite a few councils across South Australia have actually um, shown a bit of courage and leadership and stuck up for, for their residents who are, um, who are like, out of work. Um, you know, I think they recognise that, um, you know, the case for a raise um, to new start is undeniable and speaking out on behalf of their residents is, frankly, uh, the least they can do. So we've got four regional, um, sorry, five regional councils and um, three large metropolitan councils in Adelaide, Port Adelaide, Enfield, um, unlike Conquer-Paringa, which is in the southern suburbs of Adelaide, and critically the city of Playford in the northern suburbs, which has the highest unemployment rate of any council in the state and is also um, the council where the Holden factory, which um, closes officially today, is um, located. So we're glad these councils have um, stuck up for their unemployed um, residents. And, and it happened, I should say, because, because our members, um, like who live in these areas, um, spent weeks and weeks um, pressuring their councillors, meeting with them, emailing them, sharing their experiences with them, going up to council meetings in large numbers um, to hold them account. So it's it, it's been a it's been a pleasant surprise. Mm-hmm. And are you uh, in contact with counterparts in other parts of the country, like in the Unemployed Workers Union or whatever? Is there plans to take this um, campaign outside of South Australia? Because it seems like something that could really catch on. And uh, like you say, the state and federal federal government in particular can be quite unresponsive to grassroots campaigns. But if, if this groundswell spreads and you have yet more councils signing on, uh, that's it's going to be difficult for the federal government to ignore that, surely. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I see no reason why the why the campaign can't spread. I mean, we have a very close working relationship with um, the Unemployed Workers Union, um, much like them, 
um, like in addition to our um, campaigning work, we um, we provide an advocacy service for job seekers having a tough time with their job agency. So we're in pretty frequent um, contact with them. Um, and I would have thought, I mean, I've had inquiries from um, a couple of councillors from various Melbourne councils. Um, likewise, I mean, there are grassroots groups in Sydney and, and Brisbane who do very, very similar work to the anti-poverty network. So I see no reason why the campaign um, can't spread. And I think the more councils that that pick this up as an issue, I'm the more likely it's, I mean, is to break through as a as a mainstream issue. Like, I think we get enough um, councils saying, yes, New Start has to be raised and we're going to fight for that. We're going to put pressure on our state and federal counterparts. Um, I'm like, one thing, it's actually, it's actually evidence that there's, you know, significant community support for... Um, um, for raising the level of new start and for and for defending unemployed people and that's that's really important because because often you feel like you're uh, um, fighting for a pretty unpopular cause and I think part of the media's job is um, to convince many of us that there's not much um, sympathy out there for people on Centrelink payments so that we don't bother to organise and don't and don't bother to fight. But I I don't think that's true. I actually think there's a lot of people out there, particularly post-GFC, who've got um, first-hand experience of, like, interacting with Centrelink and, you know, who've received welfare payments. And, and like, a lot of people who might be working, but they're casual or part-time workers, and so they still receive a bit of new start. They still have to deal with Centrelink and their job agency. So I actually think there's a lot of... of support for our cause in the in the community and getting the councils I'm like officially on board sort of um, sort of helps to cement and um, highlight that support hmm. yeah it's really interesting how getting out there and, and getting involved in campaigning you do come to realize that there's a, such a big difference between what you're told in the media and the actual reality on the ground yes absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess, um, Paz, I want to um, ask a question about um, about this conference um, that is happening this weekend in um, Adelaide that the Anti-Poverty Network uh, is, um, is organising. Can you tell us a bit more about it and also maybe, you know, a bit of a summary of how, you know, last year went? Yeah, well, this is um, our Anti-Poverty Week conference, which starts in uh, just under um, three hours um, here in Adelaide is one of the largest anti-poverty week events in the country. And it is, I mean, we say this every year, but I think it's all through uh, the only anti-poverty week event that is organized by people on a low income and, you know, with the uh, the experiences and the insights of low income people taking center stage, you know, they ought to be the ones shaping the um, discussion and shaping the, um, the fight back, uh, this year's, this year's conference is called Attack Poverty, Not the Poor, and you know I, I, I think it seeks to highlight 
um, and the ways in which we have a government um, who are uh, and who are committed to a sort of doubling down on their agenda of punishing the poor and punishing the unemployed for the um, um, the failures of 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 the earth system um, and so there'll be um, sessions on a wide range of topics job agencies uh, sole parents the disability pension um, homelessness public housing unemployment uh, like electricity prices I mean like SA um, has the, the highest power prices in the world largely because of um, privatization and gas um, and I think the uh, uh, the conference is a real opportunity um, for people to get involved in campaigns that are uh, that are pushing back, that are challenging the narrative that you know if you're poor or like if you're unemployed, it's your fault. That's a moral failing or a or a or a character failing. And in particular, I should say we're very glad that we've got grassroots groups. Um, from four different states represented at the conference, uh, people coming down from Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, uh, which is wonderful, and also um, for the first time international um, guests from uh, extraordinary Auckland Action Against Poverty, um, who much like us in Australia have been fighting um, savage attacks on the safety net, major attacks on, on access to payments and um, I think political leaders on both sides of the Tasman are are like heavily influenced by each other. So they have their own version of the basics card, for example, which is closely based on our version of the, of the basics card, which we've had around for a long time. So I mean, it's a really I think the event is full of um, defiance and passion and solidarity. And people go away. Like understanding that you know, they have um, um, collectively much more of a voice and much more uh, like agency than they realise. Particularly the people who are, I guess, are new to uh, um, to activism and organising. You know, people on sensing payments who are getting involved in the anti-poverty network or in other grassroots groups for the first time. And like you want to do something, and like you realise that you know there's a lot of support out there for them and. There are there are a lot of important projects for them to get involved with, and if they uh, fight long enough and hard enough, they can they can um, win. So we think um, this is going to be our biggest ever um, conference. We had about 100 people um, come last year. I think we're um, definitely going to break that, and we've got um, Dr. John Falzon from. St. Vincent de Paul um, opening the, the conference is a pretty um, ferocious advocate uh, for low-income people. Not many um, CEOs um, who I'm fans of. He's probably one of the only ones. So, yeah, really looking forward to it. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting what you say about both sides of the Tasman. It, it really is an international um issue i think of i was in um germany recently my, my partner's from there and they have uh, these one euro per hour jobs over there which is kind of a variation on work for the dole here 
people that, or, or these uh, so-called past internships where you get paid slave wages, people are, who've been on uh, the equivalent of Centrelink over there for a, a certain amount of time, they're obliged to work full-time for one euro per hour. Um, and and it's, it's yeah, really similar to what's happening here, and it, and it undermines yeah. the rest of the working class. It, it puts that downward pressure on wages, same as the... Uh, pass internships and work for the door here. That's right. That's the really striking thing. Um, unlike having studied um, what's happened in New Zealand over the past few years, the the parallels are pretty uncanny. You, um, like everywhere you look, um, you know there are moves to put more and more pressure um, on unlike unemployed people, and that's, that's all deliberate. This is basically, you know, the old um, reserve army of the unemployed thesis. You know, not only do you need a large number of people out of work to help keep wages low and to help um, keep competition for jobs high, but it's also important that that army of unemployed people be made to feel as as insecure and as under as under the pump as possible. And when you think about it that way, like a lot of the policies that we've seen over the last few years actually make a lot more um, sense. If we think about cashless welfare not as as a tool for for improving, you know, people's financial skill or a tool for um, like helping people deal with substance abuse. And of course, it does neither of those things. It never has. It's never been effective at actually um, supporting those people who do have genuine problems. If we think of cashless welfare as a sort of punishment, as a way of saying, mm. um, I'd like to unemployed people, um, we're going to make um, your life really, really tough. So go out there and take the first job that mm. comes along, regardless of how like insecure and unpleasant it is, well, then the policy makes a lot more sense. Likewise, work for the doll. I mean, there's never been any evidence that work for the doll has, uh, unlike, has helped get people into work. Um, you know, it, it's been a failure in that sense. It's obviously deeply exploitative that your people do 25 hours of work for week and um, um, per week, and the only thing they get back in return is a is a ten dollar per week travel subsidy. I mean, that's fundamentally wrong. But of course, the whole point of work for the doll, and the government's often pretty open about this, you know, it's the um, job snob argument. Unemployed people are too picky and too, too selective. You know, the jobs are out there for them, but, but their standards are too high. And of course, there aren't enough jobs to go around that, like mm. the low rate of new studies, also undeniable. But what is true is that um, the the quality of jobs out there is actually declining. Like, it is true that, you know, jobs are getting um, worse and uh, and worse. That you know, the jobs um, to pick from, uh, unlike increasingly, are jobs that don't give people any um, long-term financial stability or, or security that often don't even lift them out of poverty that can, you know, sometimes be pretty harmful to them physically and mentally, you know, um, downright unpleasant work, and as the jobs on offer get worse and worse, 
um, governments are going to make life even harder for unemployed people um, because you, because you know you have to make sure that that they take these jobs even if these jobs are of no benefit to them and that's happening in Australia and that's happening right across the um, the developed world and it's a I think it's a an integral part of the uh, of the um, phase of of the phase of capitalism that we're all currently living through. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I think we're. That's pretty. Uh, do you have any kind of like um, final comments, Paz? Um, I do. I mean, I would say to um, people in Melbourne who are, um, I'm like who are active around um, poverty and unemployment and welfare that um, you know you've got some incredibly progressive um, local governments that have a history of of um, supporting community activism and grassroots struggles like Yarra and Moreland, for example, and and others, Darabin. Um, so, you know, if if um, I would have thought that there'd be um, like ample opportunities in Melbourne to get um, local governments um, to publicly advocate and campaign for a raise to New Start, and you know, mm. I'm like hopefully sometime later this year or or early next year, I look forward to reading about the first um, Victorian council to um, to publicly support a raise um, to New Start, and hopefully it happens pretty soon. Mm. Yeah, yeah well, it makes it a lot. Um... I don't know. It's it's not such a bold move when there's already a long list of South Australian councils who are, who are um, taking this position. It's it's kind of it's set the benchmark really for progressive councils elsewhere in the country to um yeah to to join on. So it's really good what you're doing over there. It's um, excellent Thank to you. see. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, we might wrap it up and uh, yeah, hope the conference goes really well. It's uh, thank you very much. Top stuff what you're doing there. Yeah, thank you very much, Paz. See you later. Catch you around. All right. Um, Paz uh, Forgioni there from the Anti-Poverty Network South Australia. And they've got their, uh, as mentioned, they've got their conference happening this weekend over there. And, yeah, doing some really good work. All right. If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible, and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. you going to hear it now, blasting out radio. Woo! All right. 
This is 3CR. You're listening to Green Left Radio. It is 7.49 in the AM, and we're bringing you some radical news and stuff once again. And uh, we had a listener call in. We were talking about the immigration test, and uh, we were talking about the sort of precursor to this current... So, so let me get this right, that this new immigration test has been abolished or it's still there? What's the latest news? Um, basically, um, Peter Dutton was trying to put in a, a kind of citizenship test. As far as I know, there's already citizen, There's already tests, I think, that hmm. citizens hmm. have to take to become permanent residents of um, Australia, hmm. uh, well, to become citizens of Australia. Hmm. Um, but I think Peter Dutton was trying to implement something that was much harsher, um, much more strict and probably much more racist. Right. Um, and that, that got blocked? Or? Yeah, basically got blocked. Yeah, okay. um, but basically, I kind of made reference in a vague way because I didn't know all the details um, because my teacher told me the story of this, you know, this was basically kind of a, a history lesson on, you know, what Australia was like before, you know, the white Australia policy was abolished. Mm. Um, and so a listener called in, you know, regarding, um, called in about, you know, what this test actually was and it was called um, the dictation test. Um, the dictation test applied to all non-European and radical people entering, uh, I think it meant racial there, um, people... No, um, probably radical. Maybe radical, yes. <laughs> entering uh, Australia between 1901 and 1958. Um, the applicant was required to write out 50 words in any European language um, after 1905, any prescribed language dictated by an immigration officer. And so basically, I think if you were an Asian, uh, probably of an Asian background, oh, and you, um, you, uh, you basically had to write in a European language. So, Okay, the next word you have to write down is... Anti-disestablishmentarianism. I'm sure they didn't just choose uh, easy words for people to write out. Yeah, but yeah, it was clearly, this was around the time of the White Australia policy and Mm. it was clearly discriminatory towards non-European, people of non-European background. Mm. Of course, Australia's not really that different now, but it's... We've gone a long way. <laughs> mm. Well, uh, yes, thank you to the uh, listener who called in with that um, choice little piece of um, history there. All right, um, so now we can get on to some news from the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, now, I'm pretty sure today is the last day to send in your marriage equality survey, so if you still have a marriage equality survey, please send it in now. Send and make- it in and make sure it's a, good, a, a yes vote. Um, I'm sure we don't have any no listeners listening, but if they are, by any chance, make sure you you don't actually have to send in your, your whatever. Um, if you're a no voter, you should put your envelope in the recycling bin. Yeah, that's, that's how you send it. That's the other. That's the alternative post box. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, so Lisbeth here wrote um, in the latest Green Left Weekly about you know this, the importance of you know beyond. Um, building the struggle for queer rights after the survey's over. Um, so, you know, at this point, you know, they write here that, you know, while the marriage equality campaign is currently focused on maximising a yes response to the, to the, in the national survey supporters of marriage equality and LGBTI rights, more generally need to look beyond the horizon of the survey, sir. Um, because basically, Lisbeth writes here that, you know, because, um, you know, a majority yes in the survey will not, definitely resolve the question of marriage equality and because there are many 
um, and because and because there are many other challenges facing the LGBTI community, particularly around legal rights. Um, because, you know, one of the things that Lisbeth here writes is, you know, conser- the conservative right wing, you know, like at this point, like Peter Dutton, for example, has actually already conceded that the yes vote is going to win. Um, however, he wants to take extra precautions to defend religious freedom. Um, and basically what um, what this says to me is that the right wing are going to attempt to sort of, you know, water down any kind of marriage quality bill that will pa- get passed in the parliament. Um, you know, basically trying to dramatically expand what circumstances religious um, individuals could legally discriminate against people they believe are in the same um, sex relationship. And of course, um, Lisbeth here writes in response to that, the campaign must build pressure for a bill to be put and ensure it contains no expansion in religious exceptions to anti-discrimination acts. Um, of course, moving beyond um, the fight for marriage equality, there are several important legal rights and protections that need to be won to ensure violence and discrimination against um, members of the LGBTI community no longer have legal um, basis um, in Australia. Um, these include some of these include, but I won't read all of them out. But you can read all of them in the late Green Left Weekly. Um, the ending of the Gan slash trans trans panic defence, which remains on the books in South Australia, um, prohibiting unnecessary surgical or other medical treatment of intersex children, including forced coercive interventions until they reach an age at which they can provide their free prior and informed consent. And of course, um, another important thing here is establishing a national standard for gender recognition that has no requirements beyond an affirmed decision of the individual. At present, only the Act and SA do not require trans individuals to undergo surgery prior to achieving gender recognition, but they still require a statement that the individual has had clinical treatment um, by an Australian psychologist psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, as Lisbeth here writes, this stigmatises and pathologizes trans experience, although not as much as other as in other states. And of course, you know, the um, the there's all sorts of kind of different demands here. Um, but you know, writing here that um, Lisbeth here concludes that you know we must demand any victory for marriage equality. We'll see the right pu- push back on other issues concerning L- the rights of the LGBT community. Mm. Um, think that that's kind of almost like a reference um to the fact that when marriage equality has passed in other countries uh, i think this particularly happened in france there was actually an increase in violence towards lgbti people um which is basically an attempt by the right to push back against you know the gains the gains. so you know we need to be prepared for um to, in defense for that um and of course um here, um, Lisbeth here writes that, you know, we must demand the reinstatement of funding for safe schools and push for its expansion to more schools. Equally important, we might, we should defend the rights of non-conforming um, children, including the ending of gender-based uniform restrictions. And, of course, um, in here, the final comment here, that, you know, the campaign to build the strongest possible support for the yes in the survey is important. However, if the horizons of the LGBTI communities and their supporters do not reach beyond this objective, then we risk losing the opportunity to make significant strides in the rights and abilities of members of the community to live their authentic lives. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a good point. Like, 
it's uh, it's really important now, I think, to start looking at strategy and, and tactics once the yes vote inevitably gets up, which we're uh, we're pretty damn sure it is. Yeah, I think yeah. I heard I heard um, in some reports that it's ahead. The yes vote's ahead by two point two million votes. Yeah, right. and uh, especially since um, this is a survey that not. Every single Australian um, was able to vote in. I think because there was a few, there was a number of people who weren't enrolled to vote into the survey. Hmm. Um, if I can just give a shout out on a slightly kind of somewhat related topic, I uh, saw an amazing film on uh, SBS on Friday night last week. It's called Holding the Man, mm. and that is by um, it's a film adaptation of a play by author Timothy Conagrave, mm. and it's about um, Timothy Conagrave's relationship with his partner, uh, uh, John Kaleo. Uh, they met at a boys' high school in, in Victoria in 1979, and uh, they contracted HIV, and so it's the story of... of basically dealing with that illness uh, eventually and the, the the kind of guilt and the just the horrible terrible um uh issues that came up um so timothy Conagrave's partner died in 1992 i think it was uh he would have been in his early 30s and then timothy Conagrave himself he'd been to nida and uh did some really good work in the dramatic arts he passed away in a couple of years later, aged 34, uh, literally 10 days after he finished writing this sort of autobiographical play. So, yeah, if you haven't seen that film, Holding the Man, it's a really um, touching look at the at the AIDS crisis and at having, um, you know, gay and lesbian relationships recognised and some of the, you know, issues around homophobia and stuff. Definitely strongly recommend that. It's, it's a really amazing film. All right. Um, so maybe we can play a quick announcement and get on to the activist calendar. Indeed you do. Estás sintonizando 3CR. 3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3CR3
Tickets are just $25 from Moshtix. That's moshtix.com.au. Just search for Howler. So come and enjoy a unique night out and be wilder. Be wilder is a 3CR supporter. This time we'll pass away. This world may not be here to stay. So much. Green Left Radio. Alright, it is two minutes past eight, and that means it is... Time for the activist calendar. Activist calendar. Alright, so um, tomorrow, this Saturday on October the 21st, there's going to be a number of events um, happening. Um, There's going to be the Walk Together 2017 at 11am at the State Library, um, which most people here probably would know where the State Library is, and that's will be in Melbourne. Um, And on... On Saturday, there will be a forum in Moreland um, called, titled No Pride in Genocide, Don't Celebrate January 26th. Um, and it's going to be basically be, you know, um, centred around this whole discussion around the three different councils in Melbourne um, and um, one in WA have wrote, voting not to recognise January 26th as Australia Day. And it will feature a range of speakers, including Gary Murray, Annette as a panel of like Aboriginal speakers, including um, Gary Murray, Annette uh, Zirus, I think. Um, and then we'll also be having Sue Bolton and Lydia Forp, who is um, the um, candidate for the Northcote um, by-election. So that'll be at Saturday, the 21st of October at 2pm. Um, at the Coburg Courthouse, um, 1A Main Street, um, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. On Sunday, there'll be probably the last marriage... Yeah, I think it is the last marriage equality before the survey... Um, before the um, during the period of the survey. Um, they'll be at 1pm at the State Library, um, and it's organised by Equal Love. But just <coughs> to give a bit of an extra omp to the rally, um, at 2pm... Basically, the plan for the rally is at 2 p.m. It will be going to the. There'll be um, the rally will be at the Treasure Gardens, and there'll be like stalls and it'll be a bit of a festival. Mm. Um, but they also will be having the band Spiderbait performing on that uh, at the Marriage Equality Rally. Yes. So also and also a range of other speakers as well. Lovely. Get along to it. That's that's so cool. Yes, fest. Yeah. Sunday, 1 p.m. State Library, 328 Swanston Street, City. Get in there. All right. And so now there'll be uh, on on this uh, next Friday, on October the 27th, there'll be a red cinema, See Saw Plurdy, Yes You Can. And it's basically going to be a film about, you know, um, about set in Barcelona, about um, about the life of um, Barcelona's platform for people affected by mortgage uh, mortgages, a radical advocate. Ad- ad- Activist organisation dedicated to fighting evictions and demanding policies which put people's needs ahead of corporate greed. Um, so that will be happening at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street at 6.30 with a meal from 6pm on Friday, October the 27th. And it's a fundraiser for Green Left Weekly. Um, on Wednesday, the 1st of November, there will be, uh, there'll be a protest at, um, at the International Mining Conf- um, Conference, and it will be inviting people to join um, us for a public rally outside Australia's biggest mining conference to protest against Adani, and that will be at 1.30pm at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. 
Um, from Thursday, November the 2nd to Sunday, the November the 5th, there'll be a Palestinian film festival at the Cinema Nova, 380 Ligon Street in Carlton. Um, you can probably search, search that up by searching Palestinian film festival on the Cinema Nova website. Um, there'll be a solidarity rally, NTEU protests at the Victoria University's National Council. Um, basically, Victoria University has unleashed a round of force redundancies, which include the NTEU branch president, secretary, vice president, and fourth member of the branch committee. Um, basically, this this is not a coincidence. It is a vicious attack on our union. Um, and so there's actually no venue for that yet, um, but there will be a protest on Thursday, November the tw- um, 2nd. Um, but it will likely be in somewhere near Flinders Street but um, because that's where the VU uh, council meetings usually take place in. Um, so just stay tuned for further details on that. On Saturday, November the 4th, there'll be uh, a seminar, Northern Syria's Feminist Revolution, happening from 10am to 7pm at the Victoria University City Campus, and it's organised by the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre, Kurdish Women's League, and Australians for Kurdistan. For more information, see Australians for Kurdistan. Um, also happening on that day will be there'll be a protest in support of public housing. Um, this will be following the the last protest that happened uh, on Sunday, um, but basically this will be taking place at one pm at the Walker Street um, in a state um, public housing estate in Northcote. So just search um, Walker Street and it will put on Google Maps and it'll give you the um, right address. Um, for where to find this um, the public housing estate, and they'll be at one pm at November the fourth. Cool, cool, good stuff. Uh, all right. So, what else has been going on in the world? All right. Um, I think there's. I want to talk a bit about um, this um, article that was written by Lisa G- um, Gleason um, about basically about Palestine. Um, it's about how Israel is deepening, you know, its apartheid regime. Um, basically, Lisa starts off by writing members of the, the Israel's parliament for the ruling Likud party, Anat Bako, has presented Prime Minister Netanyahu with plans to change the status of 300,000 Palestinians in Jerusalem. If this was implemented, Jerusalem would be formally divided and, and a group similar in size to the population of Wollongong would suddenly find itself stripped of permanent residence within um, Israel's formal border, borders, as well as associated rights. The 300,000 people would instead be considered residents of the occupied Palestinian territory of West, the West Bank. And of course, um, Berko writes more, is hoping to use... Um, you know, underhanded cryptography and extremely rubbery figures changing who is actually counted as a resident of Jerusalem to magically increase um, the Jewish population in the city that um, that Israelis and Palestinians both claim as their capital. At the same time, um, Israel would free itself of any responsibilities towards the Palestinians in question. On October 6th, um, uh, a news article said that the Jewish ma- majority of Jerusalem would leap from about 70 to 95 percent. Uh, in the first phase, 300,000 Palestinians would be given Area B sta- status, which places them under civil authority of the Palestinian Authority, but still subject to Israeli Israeli civil security control. In a second phase, they would they would shift to Area A status status under full Palestinian control. You know, none, no one is under any illusions. Such a move is motivated by a desire to strengthen uh, 
um, Palestinian um, autonomy, add this this plan to the routine practice of revoking Palestinian status in Jerusalem on the flimsiest of pretexts, and the result is an ongoing process of dem- democratic um, transformation in Jerusalem to officially purge it of Palestinians. Um, you know, so you know, one of the I think what the kind of implications of this is basically an attempt to you know essentially to turn Israel into more of a, you know, to more of a, a Jewish majority state and, you know, does it on the pretest of, you know, basically stripping, you know, the Palestinians who are already living within the borders of Israel of any kind of um, recognition uh, um, in, um, by Israel. Um, but, of course, it also, you know, there's more kind of details here and Lisa's article, but Lisa kind of concludes that, you know, it makes a mockery of um, Israel's continued pretest of being interested in peace and a negotiated settlement with Palestinians, you know, as Palestinians, as, you know, you know, they're calling for this whole thing about, you know, how we're going to negotiate, you know, settlements with with um, with Palestine, but, you know, they still advance plans for ever more Israeli settlements on Palestinian land. Mm. So, yeah, basically more... More example, you know, this article kind of just kind of outlines more examples of how, you know, Israel is a apartheid state. Mm. All right, so Zane, you have an article to share? Um, well, I just wanted to make a mention. Uh, it's more of a local issue happening up in Newcastle, but it's uh, something that would be, uh, I think it would provoke mass outrage if it happened in um in somewhere like Melbourne or Sydney, and that's the closure of the Newcastle rail line and rezoning of it to allow development on the corridor. So um, I just put in a submission this week. Newcastle City Council is taking submissions about the rezoning of the rail corridor. The corridor was closed at the end of 2012, and uh, at the time, the planning minister... uh, in New South Wales, Liberal uh, government there, the planning minister, Brad Hazard, said, um, the rail corridor will remain in public hands. I can make it very clear, 100%, that our intent is it stays in public ownership for the long haul, so there's no intent whatsoever to go handing it over to developers. What we're really talking about here is a guaranteed, no doubt about it, stays in public ownership, must remain as a potential corridor. So that's Brad Hazard, New South Wales Planning Minister in 2012 and today in 2017, they are rezoning the corridor to allow development in it. Uh, And just to give some perspective, Newcastle is the second largest city in New South Wales. It's the second largest non-capital city in Australia. The Hunter region is home to about 600,000 people. Newcastle itself is home to about a quarter of a million people. And they cut the they cut 2.7 kilometres of the train line there, and it was the busiest section of the train line. And what they're proposing to do now is put buildings on that so that it's permanently uh, closed off. And mm. so, yeah, it's it's just scandalous and horrible. And people, Saviour Rail fought for 20, 25 years to stop that from happening. Um, so, yeah, it's really disappointing and really the kind of the last thing that progressives and Greens are trying to do and, and socialists are trying to do in Newcastle now is to say, if you're going to develop on the corridor, you need to leave a tunnel so that heavy rail can be reinstated 
or or even light rail can be reinstated through there at some point in the future because mm. um yeah traffic jams were never really a thing in newcastle it's not a huge city mm. but since they've cut the train line there's um yeah traffic jams and it's yeah it's just such a massive backward step yeah to be cutting a, an arterial public transport corridor in a major city in yeah. this day and age kind of reminds me about in Okay, where I'm originally from, um, um, in Ge- the region of Geelong, there's um, so many unused kind of train lines or, or yeah, basically um, train stations that have all been shut down. Um, and, of course, um, in the context of, um, of you know, a str- uh, of Geelong now, it would actually be very beneficial if, say, Geelong still uh, reinstated those train lines to, say, you know, rebuild a connection between... Ballarat and Geelong, because mm. um, at this point you um, the only way to get to Ballarat from Geelong is to take a very infrequent bus, mm. um, and there's also you know you could connect train. Um, they could be connecting trains to say Torquay, um, mm. which is still you know a very highly populated um, town of of Geelong, and you know mm. uh, it would be waving like you know, and and the start of a sort of tourist. Um Sort of at the at the front end of the Great Ocean Road. Yeah, like you know, imagine if people didn't have to use to travel to Torquay, people could get a, a train from Melbourne to Geelong and then take another train to Torquay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, at this point, all those train stations have been closed down due to you know. And was that the Kennett government that did that? I am not completely sure. I think they got shut down around the eighties, actually. Okay. Um, but also, they, um, Geelong also used to have trams. Uh, although I imagine these trams would be very bulky and um, not as efficient as what modern trams are like, but there used to be a tram that went from Geelong to the Warren Ponds. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's it. It's it's one thing to cut train services, tram services. It's another thing to permanently block those corridors so they can never be used again. Hmm. Um, it was interesting too. I was in... Um, I, I mentioned earlier I've recently visited um, Germany because that's where my partner is from and we went to Tempelhof Airport and that's in the middle of Berlin and this airport was closed in 2009 and people just started using it as a as a park and a place to have barbecues and ride your bike and walk your dog and people started planting like guerrilla gardening and planting community gardens there and it's this amazing space. And then some property developers and local government were like, oh, yeah, no, nah, we're going to um, develop this part of the airport. But don't worry, we'll only develop 25% of it and we'll put some affordable housing there. And people were like, what? You haven't built social housing or, or public housing for decades. And now we're expected to believe you're going to build it on airport land? That's not going to happen. So there's this big public campaign and eventually there was a citywide referendum in Berlin and the uh, this thing got up and they've, the, they've declared Tempelhof Airport in Berlin as public open space that can't be developed permanently. Um, so it's, yeah, it's... And that, that I was reminded of that looking at this um, rail corridor in Newcastle. There's never been any vote. There's never been any mandate to cut that train line. Mm. Um but yeah, if if you, if anyone's ever in Berlin, check out Tempelhof Airport. It's incredible. Like how often, in the middle of a major city, 
or, or anywhere else for that matter, do you get to go for a walk on the tarmac of a, you know, massive airport where jumbo jets used to land? It's a really uh, bizarre and, and amazing space. Hmm. All right. Um, so some more news from Green Left Weekly. Um, I just wanted to talk, because um, this is it. Okay, issue I've been kind of following closely. Um, this is an article by Dave Zirin in the Cultural Descent section of Green Left Weekly, and it's Dave Zirin. And it's basically, you know, we actually he's someone we should try and get in contact with and have a bit of an interview with um, at some point, do a pre-recording. Um, but yeah, he's um, he's written an article here about you know support for protesting sports people are surging because uh, you know the context is. Um, President, United States President Donald Trump has, you know, has tried to focus, you know, the nation's eye on anti-racist black athletes. He's tried to demonize them on the highest possible stage, calling for them to lose their job. You know, he's basically, his transparent aim was to find a boogeyman to distract people from the cascade of scandal and failed legislation and his administration's disastrous response uh, to the suffering in Puerto Rico. Um, well, the results of this idiotic effort are in. First and foremost, it is provoked death threats aimed at um, numerous NFL players, an unconscionable result that falls right on the president's shoulders. One support Trump's spoil with a huge Twitter following even linked the horrific um, Las, Las Vegas shooting to the same mentality of these players. But at the same time, um, you know, th- these protests of, of, you know, NFL players kneeling um, um, during um, the national anthem before an NL- NFL game as opposed to standing <laughs> um, has, you know, has actually... Um, from last year, it was clear that, that they didn't receive much public support from their protesting. But nowadays, um, they're receiving much more higher public support. Um, most Americans say the protests by NFL um, players during the national anthem are appropriate. Um, a US Today suffered university for um, university poll finds, and they say by overwhelming margins that President Trump's heated criticism of them are not. Um, the numbers to back that up in these draining dark times are cause for hope by a margin of 51% to 42%. People say the players' protests are appropriate. 68% of, um, percent of respondents say that Trump's call for games to be boycotted and players fired are inappropriate, and that includes one-third of Republicans. There is a racial divide, um, as David Zoon writes here, but 44% of white people support the protests. And I think drawing the conclusions from, you know, this increase of public support of, you know, of these um, sports players protesting, um, you know, the first and, you know, obvious, most obvious point is that Trump is poison. He is a profound, profane bully whose ugliness pushed people into supporting the, the players and their rights to protest, even if their reasons for the protests have received less attention. Because one of the issues is a lot of the attention that these um that these athletes are receiving for their protests has been kind of distorted by Trump because a lot of these black athletes are protesting against the whole subject of police brutality mm. and also um, they're also protesting generally against white supremacy because, you know, the Nash, the whole kind of some of the reasoning that's been put forward for their protests has been that, you know, why should I stand for the national anthem when you know, Af- when my ancestors were treated as slaves, and we're still marginalised in in society today. Mm. Um, but of course, you know, the second conclusion is um, that Dave Herb writes is that solidarity matters. Seeing almost two hundred players take part in 
part in protests altered how people consume these acts. These protests may have been met with boos in some stadiums, but if you've ever been to an NFL game, you know that the typical in-stadium represents a very narrow slice of this country, wealthy enough to afford tickets, parking and $10 beers, as well as overwhelmingly white. And of course... Writing here, solidarity and struggle change public opinion. It always has, has always been that way and it will always be that way. We forget that because we think social media platforms such as Twitter are public opinion when they actually represent profoundly distorted windows. Mm. Um, but of course, you know, re, what, what Dave Zirin concludes here is that, you know, we need to refocus attention on this, fa- on, you know, the fact that these protests are about protesting against police brutality and racism. And this is about Tamil Rice, Tamir Rice, not Donald Trump. The more it's about Trump, no matter what the poll numbers say, the more we stand to lose. Mm. And so, yep, this was slightly abridged from Edge of Sports. Yeah, nice. Yeah, Dave Zirin has some excellent uh, kind of. Uh, commentary on the intersection between radical politics and, and sports. So, yeah, keep an eye out on... Uh, well, one of the... I'll, I'll just play a quick um, announcement um, for, and we'll, we'll be back with that. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. All right, getting towards the tail end of the show for the week. Uh, Stick around, because Beyond Zero emissions are coming up real soon. Mm. I guess I just wanted to talk about this... um This is something that might have slipped out of the mainstream news, Um, so it's worth kind of repeating. Um, Basically, um, Centrelink has um, made a decision recently to contract out some of their core centres to a private company called Serco, Mm. which I'm sure some people here are probably aware of. Previously well known for administering our offshore torture camps. Yep. Um, but the Community and Public Sector Union, CPSU, has condemned the federal government for allowing multinational company Serco to operate a Centrelink core centre, saying the move will put thousands of vulnerable people at risk. Um, but, of course, at the, the, the um, um, Human Services Minister Alan Tudge has announced Serco subsidy Serco citizen services will begin operating a Centrelink call centre in Melbourne within weeks with 250 full-time equivalent staff. The Serco call centre privatisation move, which may be the beginning of a future sell-off of Centrelink operations, is estimated to cost $51.7 million over three years. It represents yet another attack on the public sector by the government, which is determined to outsource as much public service work to big business as it can. And, of course, you know, you know the, the, the move to sell off um, 
Centrelink core service to discredit Britain-based multinational Circo is to be funded from the same 2017 to 2018 budget, federal budget that slashed 1,200 jobs from the Department of Human Services. Um, and so, you know, um, CPSU National Secretary um, Nadine Flood said on October 11, the deal hatched by the Turnbull government is an absolute disaster for Centrelink and the thousands of runnable Australians who rely on the agency. And, you know... She also makes mention of the fact that, you know, Serco is a tax-avoiding multinational pro- um, parasite, plain and simple, that profits from downgrading public services and underpaying the people who provide them. Um, you know, everything they touch leads to services uh, suffering. But, mm. yeah, it's just completely very problem- um, incredibly problematic and part of this sort of, you know, trend of privatisation of, of public services. Yeah, Centrelink's terrible uh, already. The the call service there, like people just calling fifty times and not getting through, or being put on hold for an hour and then getting hung up on. So imagine how much worse it's going to get under Circo. And what a horrible sort of dystopian thing where you you kind of you'll have to get on the phone to Circo because you're being chased by a private debt collector for a robo debt that you're that Centrelink has been trying to trawl money from you using a, basically a phishing scam. Like, things are getting, going real downhill. It's, uh, yeah, it gets back to the anti-poverty network, um, South Australia, who are having their conference this weekend. Like, the more grassroots uh, struggle to, to get a fair and, and you know, uh, a human kind of uh, unemployment payment and not all these punitive layer upon layer of punitive harassment of job seekers it's uh yeah important stuff right um so i guess one la uh, is there any kind of room for one more news story yeah i think so right just just a quick one well what what is a quick sim- oh yeah i just wanted to talk actually i'll talk about this article i wrote in green left weekly quickly um, but basically, um, the Daniel Andrews government uh, has announced a number of rental reforms, um, which you know will make things, you know, slightly better for you know um, you know renters. Um, basically, um, some of the changes including include a right for tenants to have pets. Um, 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 landlords are being restricted to only incre- being able to increase rents every twelve months instead of every six months, which is good mm-hmm. um and and of course um but of course one of the, the these are some you can read probably read more of these changes um in the article um and also on daniel andrew's website but what i find probably the most fascinating is these mild reforms have you know got an opposition from the real estate institute of victoria and despite the fact these reforms don't actually radically roll haul the market to begin with i mean mm. the housing market is still pretty screwed up um, but of course these reforms are quite a welcome even if they don't go far enough they'll scream even over small things all right uh that's been us uh, green left radio for another week stick around beyond zero uh coming up next this brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to friday morning breakfast with green left radio Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.com.
www.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime.